James Marone is a professor of political science at Brown University. He grew up in Rio de Janeiro and New York City, and he's also been on the faculty of Yale University and the University of Chicago. Marone's first book, The Democratic Wish, was named a notable book by the New York Times. His book, Hellfire Nation, The Politics of Sin in American History, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. His most recent book is The Heart of Power, Health and Politics in the Oval Office, co-written with David Blumenthal, MD. According to very unreliable sources, this book has been read by President Obama. <laughs> On that note, please join me in welcoming Mr. James A. Marone. Oh, hi. Hey, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming and thanks for that lovely introduction. You, you probably all know that the secret of success in life is to lower expectations and then exceed them. But we've blown that strategy, for, thanks to that lovely... Uh, so we'll have to go to plan B. Well, it's a... Uh, I couldn't have a more magical moment to be talking about healthcare and healthcare politics. Uh, let me back up to get a running start. In 1911, that's the date, that's known as the Great Divide, when the random patient meeting the random doctor was more likely to be helped than harmed by the experience. 1911. 1912... Theodore Roosevelt first proposed national health insurance. 1915, it gets voted down for the first time in California. You uh, forged the politics of healthcare for almost a century by voting it down. The AMA actually supported it back in 1915, uh, but the doctors then fired their entire board and went into opposition, and, uh, and down it went. That was the beginning of a long, hard debate. And just a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, one House of Congress actually passed this reform for the first time ever. And I, I want to take a moment and just appreciate, whether you love it or hate it, what a historic moment that is. And tomorrow, we'll start the first of six, count them six, potential filibusters in the Senate to see if a second House will pass it. So let me just start by saying this. If you're a geek like me about health reform, it doesn't get any better than right now. <laughs> I want to do two things tonight, really. First, let's just back up even further and talk about the problems that we face in healthcare. I just will run through this quickly. You know what they are, but I want to put my own little spin on them. And then from my book, I'm going to give you the 10 commandments of winning health reform. And then in the Q&A, if you want to talk about this plan or, or Barack's plan or uh, any kind of details like that, we'll, we can get into that in the Q&A. So part one, what are we talking about when we talk about health reform? Three things. Thing number one, costs, right? Costs. A healthcare expert is someone with lots of synonyms for going up, exploding, rising, getting out of control, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's a great economist uh, who sends out Christmas cards every year for when we'll have it all, 100% of the economy, to healthcare, and he has a prediction. I think the last uh, card I got was 2,106, so everything. So those rooms upstairs, long-term nursing facility, right? It's gonna, uh, I want the room with the Rothko's, by the way, for where. So costs, and when we talk about costs, there's lots of ways to talk about costs. Cost to me, cost to your employer, cost to the government, forget all that. What we're really talking about when we talk costs is the percentage of the entire economy, of the GDP, that goes to healthcare. 
Every three and a half years, on average, the United States takes an extra 1% of GDP and puts it in healthcare. Every three and a half years, we take one extra penny and take it out of, say, education, uh, higher education maybe, or to take a subject near to my heart, and puts it into healthcare. Now, if you're in the healthcare business, that's for all the troubles of the business and for all the annoyances you face, that's a pretty good situation to be in. One penny out of every dollar every three and a half years. Now, what's really remarkable about this figure, that's the bottom line, incidentally. Whether we have a bigger deficit because of Medicare, whether you're paying a lot more out of pockets, as a healthcare analyst, I'm sorry, I don't care about that. What I care is this constant money going into the healthcare system because that's unstable. It's not going to continue. Now, here's the other striking thing. Across the industrialized world, that same figure, zero. Zero. See, everybody else, they all scream, oh yeah, healthcare costs going through the roof. But they've figured out a way to stop the cost rise. Now, I'm, going to te- I'm not going to tell you that Austria or England or France has the perfect system. There is no perfect system. But they've solved the problem. Let me illustrate. In the first six years of the Bush administration, Japan rises total percent of GDP, zero. Uh, France, zero. Canada, a little bit above zero. Germany, zero. U.S. Oh, England. England, Tony Blair got into trouble because of his adventures with George Bush in the war in Iraq. And so what's his answer? Flood the NHS, the National Health Service, with money. Worked great. The British spent like drunken sailors. You talk to one of their health and said, yeah! 0.6 of 1%. That's the idea of British drunken sailors. The United States in that same period, 2.1% of GDP. Six years. Astonishing rise. So here's the punchline. As long as that's happening, the system is unstable and we'll be fighting about healthcare reform. And I should say, as an aside, everybody's got a little magic bullet. You know, Newt Gingrich, if we can just get the, 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 the uh, corruption out of the system and the fraud, waste, and abuse, we'll have cost control. Or President Obama, if we can just have a more efficient system that's wired in the hospitals and we're using, uh, we can have cost control. Or uh, a lot of people, Uh, will say, well, if just we can get people to stop smoking, get them jogging, stop the overdrinking, stop the drugs, we'll have cost control. Look, none of those things are going to work. I'm sorry. In fact, the li- healthy lifestyle, great, jog. By all means, eat tofu, I'm for it. But you want to know what? You don't help the system. You know, if you are overweight and you drink and you smoke, 60 years old, you, dr- you die. No more health care. You're a good bargain. <laughs> So if you're really thinking only about saving costs, give them the cigarettes. <laughs> so forget the magic bullets. It's going to hurt sooner or later. All right, that's the first problem. And I shouldn't linger too, far, uh, too long on the problems because we got to get on how on my Ten Commandments. Problem number two, huge irony. Despite the costs, of course, as we all know, there are these 50 million people without health insurance. The Institute of Medicine um, estimates in a study funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is pretty much our gold standard, that 18,000 people die a year who would survive if they had reasonable health insurance. Uh, let's add that up. 270,000 deaths, according to the Institute of Medicine, since the Clinton reform went down in flames. We're talking about something really serious uh, here. And um, it's, it's a... It's a Powerful. Anytime, any of you who are in the hospitals, and anytime you grapple with health insurance, down below there is this huge problem that Americans face, and that's 
the problems of uninsurance, and it gets weird. There's lots of people with inadequate insurance. Let me, let me illustrate. There's a wonderful economist from the University of Pittsburgh who was going off to it with her family to Europe. And she, being an economist, didn't trust those European healthcare systems, so she wanted to buy good old American insurance. So she sends out a um, form, fills out the form, and back comes the insurance policy. And being an economist, she actually read her insurance policy. Uh, most people don't do that. They're in, 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 indecipherable. But she read it, and she discovered something weird, that her son, that everybody was covered in her family, except her son's left leg. No coverage. So she did a little analysis. Why no left leg? It turns out when the kid was three, he fell off a bike, and they took him to a hospital, and they took pictures, x-rays, just to make sure there was no broken bones. The insurance company, in the ether, found a record and decided, ah, that's a pre-existing condition. We're not going to cover that. Rest of the family looks healthy. Cover the rest of the family. What a weird system, huh? If you're sick, you're likely not to get insurance. If your left leg has had x-rays, you're in trouble. Now, it, it, it makes good political sense to smash the insurance business and the insurance industry, but let's be honest for a second. We've set up a system that goes like this. What we say, we want you guys to compete, try to compete, keep low cost, quality high, insure lots of people, and may the best insurance plan win. What we really say, all right, guys, we know how to win in the health insurance game. It's easy. Insure healthy people. And the insurance industry is incredibly good. They call it risk management. They're really good at it. My dad was in this business. He knows. It, so, who's healthy? Well, young people, um, wealthy people. Who's not going to be healthy? They can tell you to the third decimal point, if you're getting a little older, if you don't have a job with a young group of people, if you happen to be a member of a minority group, if you happen to have long-term conditions, if you're, did I say poor already? Yeah, if you happen to be poor, all those things are bad risks. And we've designed a system that tells the insurance companies, you can win if you've got healthier patients. Then you've got nice low premiums and all the healthy people want to come to you. So just find a way to shun the ill. And we can smash the insurance companies and bash the insurance companies, but those are the incentives we've put into the system. Seek the healthy, shun the sick. And so health reform has to be about that also, reorganizing the rules so insurance companies don't just race after people like my students at Brown University, who at that age, as you know, people bounce when they're dropped. So here's another American anomaly. Other nations cover people uh, universally, and they do it cheaper. Now, this doesn't tell us what to do. So, for example, if you're on a certain part of the political spectrum, you look at me grumpily and you say, well, you know what? I believe this is about individual market preferences, and that's okay. We could organize a system around individual preferences. And across on the other end of the political spectrum, I'm pointing right, but it's your left, you get what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> we have a concept of social insurance. It goes like this, we're all in this together, and our health insurance system has to reflect that idea of a community, of a community pool, of the idea that as I say, we're all in this together. So there's a philosophic question beneath these problems. Do you see health as a personal responsibility, as a communal responsibility, or something in between? Because that will help you decide how we respond to these problems. But 
we have to respond. We have to respond to these problems. And as long as they may re remain, we'll keep having this terrific debate about healthcare reform. All right, I said three problems. That's two, there's a third problem. And let's get it on the table right now. If you're a green eye shades boring person, you might enjoy looking at the statistics of cross-national health data. Have you ever looked at that? You'll acknowledge being boring if you do, so let me just jump into this. What you'll see is that the United States is 31st in life expectancy at birth, 31st. The CIA did a study on a whole lot of cross-national health data uh, among the 35 wealthiest nations in the world. And thank God for Latvia, we whipped their butts, but everybody else, not so much. We come in 32nd, 34th, 33rd, in one health indicator after another. There's a little boy being born right now in Los Angeles. He's gonna live on average three and a half years less long than the little boy being born right this minute in Tokyo. It's a stunning statistic that we, the richest nation on earth, have such terrible health data. If our Olympic team came in 31st, there would be congressional action. <laughs> but an eerie quiet about these outcomes. You can drive around Los Angeles today and see life expectancy that ranges from neighborhood to neighborhood 10, 15, 20, 25 years. That's the difference between the first world and the poorest nations on earth. And that's a story about the United States. Now, again, there's lots of ways to see this. Some people say, well, people don't take care of themselves, and by the time we get to 60, we've cleaned out the people who smoke, don't jog, and, uh, and drink too much. And other people say, this is a problem of the community, of the society. This is a problem we have to address together. I don't want to tell you which values to hold, but whatever values you hold, it's an arresting thing that our outcomes are so bad. So costs, access to care, and those lousy outcomes. And I should say something. I said three problems, but let me add a fourth. It's a, it's a baker's three or a political scientist's three. While we're doing all this, we want to think about the quality of the healthcare system as a whole. That doesn't often make it into the headlines, but there's a lot of discussion about it. Oh, do we have the best healthcare system in the world? Yeah. Do we have terrible healthcare in some places? Yeah. Yes, again. So there's lots of discussion. Do we wire the hospitals and the physicians' offices so that all healthcare goes online? Barack Obama says, absolutely. Do we reform the malpractice system? The Republicans say, absolutely. What do we do about all kinds of practice issues in the healthcare system? That's a fourth problem, and let me just toss it out there. And if you're in the medical system, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can practice under the best conditions and under the worst in uh, a 30-mile radius from where we're talking now. Costs? getting insurance to everyone, worrying about our outcomes, and thinking what we're going to do to the healthcare system as a whole. All right, this is the part of the talk, if this were a normal talk, where I'd start giving you different kinds of plans, but that would put you all to sleep, and it's Friday night, so let's, let's have more fun than that. How do you win? How do you get these, um, after these huge, long, uh, screaming debates? I should say a, a word about this. The moment comes for health reform. And we see, year in and year out, these enormous barriers to health reform. Harry Truman, 
put when he was having his fantastic 1948 Dewey defeats Truman, come from behind, patron saint of all lost causes, St. Jude, where are you, patron saint of lost causes, campaign to win the election of 1948. What was his big issue? National health insurance. And when he wins, he puts it before Congress, and there's a huge flap. Senator Robert Taft gets up, and he says, this is the most socialistic thing I've ever seen uh, before this Congress. And he and the Republicans walk out, but before he does, there's a screaming match. This is socialism. No, it isn't. You're a creep. No, you're not. You shut up. No, I won't. And out he goes. <laughs> it, 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 they put, went off the record, off the official record, but Time Magazine was there, and you can read it all in, uh, in, uh, in 1949, this huge shouting match. And that's how it goes every time. Medicare is before the United States in 1963, and the American Medical Association gets an actor and says, please record a message to physicians and their spouses to encourage them to write letters. I want you to listen to the rhetoric. Write those letters now. Call your friends. Tell them to write. If you don't, I promise you, this program will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. And behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country until one day we will awake to find that we have socialism. And if you don't do this, this is Medicare, and if you don't do this, and if I don't do this, one of these years we'll spend our sunset days telling our children and our children's children what it was like in America when men were free. Medicare. Well, there is a slight punchline here. The actor they got to record this uh, record is one Ronald Reagan, who later had a career in politics. Um, and it's uh, vaguely familiar because Sarah Palin in her uh, debate with Joe Biden took the last quote, not realizing, I'm sure, her people didn't realize where exactly it was from. If you're a conservative, you're sitting there thinking, well, the old man was right again. And we can talk about that in the Q&A. But the point I'm making is this is tough stuff to pass. The problem's undeniable. The fact that this is going to be debated year in and year out that's there until we solve the problems, but it's hard. So, what are my prescriptions, my Ten Commandments for reform? Commandment number one, get your philosophy straight. Look, I've already implied this, programs must reflect deep and abiding values of the community itself. It's funny because if you know anything about Washington, D.C., you know two things. First, I'm saying you've got to get your philosophy straight. Secondly, as they say in Washington, if it doesn't fit on the bumper sticker, you've lost the debate. So you need both, the bumper, the bu the bumper sticker and the, and the philosophy. And, you know, the great presidents are great because they've articulated a particular philosophy of the country. I mean, you could say Ronald Reagan's as long as I'm talking Ronald Reagan and I think seven words. Um, Government bad, USA, oh, that's one word, okay, USA great, capitalism very great, communism, oh, I went over my seven words, horrible. That's it. Everybody knows what Ronald Reagan stood for. That's what makes him a great president. He had a philosophy. It's a philosophy that's dominated the last, the last generation. <laughs> I'm not supposed to touch that. FDR, here's his first inaugural. These dark days will be worth all they cost us if they remind us that our primary responsibility is to minister to one another. A whole philosophy in that one phrase. He repeated it over and over again. And that, more than any of his programs, make him a great president. So what we 
Every national health insurance plan has to have that philosophy. And if you want to hear the great philosophy debate of recent years, it's Barack Obama talking to Joe the plumber. There it was, the two philosophies. Things are better when you spread the wealth around a little bit. Ah, it sounds like socialism to me. There you have it. Ronald Reagan versus um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Get your philosophy straight. Second, and this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you, the most remarkable thing. Um, if you want to fall asleep, right after my second commandment is the time. So let me focus on this for a second. Congress is the most complicated, the most infernal, the most difficult, the most problematic legislative, any kind of government body in the entire universe. And you have to learn to work it. This is something we don't quite know about Obama, but I, I'll talk about that a little later. Work, what, is, what am I talking about? What am I talking about? First, let's, let's look at the complexity. Okay, ready? I try to explain this to foreign audiences. They go, whoa. Okay, here comes... The House, three different committees say, well, we're going to write, a, we're going to write our own bills. They had two bills actually passed. Then it goes to the Rules Committee. Did you know that every time a bill goes to the floor of Congress, we make up new rules under which to play by? Yes, that goes to the Rules Committee. How much can the majority get away with? Then you, uh, oh, uh, there, were three different vo uh, there were three different pieces of legislation, right? So the majority leader has to say, okay, I'll take this from this and this from this and this from this. Oh, you don't like that? Okay, we'll renegotiate it some more. Then it finally gets under its own separate rules to the House floor. The Senate, uh, same thing. Uh, House floor. Now it needs 60 votes. There are six different places to filibuster this bill. Then they've got two different bills. They go to a committee. That committee then, behind closed doors, conference, uh, writes a whole other proposal, another whole other bill, goes back to both houses, and then they have to pay. That is a process and a half. You've got to learn to work the inner workings of Congress. We listened to tapes when we were doing this book of Lyndon Johnson, who was the greatest master uh, at this uh, in, in the 20th century. Here's an example. At one point, they were going to kill Medicare by raising Social Security so high, getting so much money pumped into Social Security, the Social Security tax would go so high, no room for Medicare. This is right before the 64 election. A guy named Wilbur Mills is behind this. And at the last minute, Senator Russell Long votes to knock this thing down. Long hated Medicare. He was fighting it for years. The press runs up to him, Senator Long, why did you vote for to save Medicare? Lyndon told me to, he says, Lyndon told me to. Lyndon told you to, that's sort of in the history books. Lyndon, we discovered a tape six weeks after Lyndon told me to. It goes like this, Senator Long, uh, Mr. President, they're going to close the biggest base in Louisiana. You've got to stop them. It's going to really hurt me. Well, he says, Johnson, you can hear him eating his, his lunch. Well, 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 Senator Long, if, if it's on McNamara's list, there's nothing I can do. Senator Johnson, this, I'm begging you, you've got to help me. Uh, President Johnson, you've got to help me. I'm sorry, Senator Long, nothing I can do. Long pause. Lyndon Johnson, uh, Senator Long, Mr. President, when you needed help on Medicare, I didn't go back on you. Long pause. I'll get back to you. Ten minutes later, Senator Long calls him back. Senator Long, you've got nothing to worry about. You can sleep well tonight, long as you are my boss, man. I'm going to vote for you every time. Notice what happened. Johnson said, I need that shit from you. Long gave him that shit because he knew when he needed it, that shit would come back. That's a negotiator. That's trusting someone. You know this dirty, rotten secret that we discovered? We discovered this doing our research. Johnson actually calls McNamara. McNamara said, McNamara said, are you nuts? Long's too powerful. I'm not going to cut any bases in his district. So it was all false. But Johnson never let on. So Long is dead. Johnson's dead. The secret can now be told. Uh, one more story, just to give you a sense of this internal negotiations. The last one I tell, I promise. So here's, here's the 
Here's another Lyndon Johnson story. The great history of Medicare goes like this. Wilbur Mills, the same guy who tried to screw Medicare before the 64 election, sees there's a huge landslide in 64, sees it's going through. So what does he do? He takes the administration bill called Medicare, which just was going to pay for hospitals, and he puts next to it a bill that the Republicans, put, uh, that, the, that the AMA put together that was just going to pay physicians. We now know it as Medicare Part B. And he took a bill that the Republicans just paid for poor people. They thought it would be a poorer program if it paid for poorer people. And at the last minute, Wilbur Mills says, why don't we pass all three? The Johnson's uh, aide was sitting there, a guy named Wilbur Cohen. He goes, oh my God, what's Wilbur Mills doing? He goes running to Johnson. He goes, Wilbur Mills just tripled the size of Medicare. What do I do? Do we have the money for it? What do we do? And Johnson goes, I think I'll go call my brother. Well, that's not the answer. And Wilbur... Wilbur Cohen says, Mr. President, what do you mean? This is all in Johnson's biography, autobiography. And Johnson says, you don't know that story? Why, every Texan knows that story. Turns out there's a guy, he's, uh, wants to be a, he wants to be a train switchman. And this, they take him to, te- to do the test. So he stand, put him in front of the train switch. They say, train coming north 50 miles an hour, train going south 50 miles an hour. What do you do? He says, I go call my brother. Well, that's not the right answer. They look at it. No, it's not the right answer. Why do you go call your brother? Why, he ain't never seen no train wreck before, says the man. <laughs> ah, give Wilbur the money. Give him the money. Well, it's all right. And so he goes back. Within 24 hours, the bill is written, and it's now got Medicare Part A, which is all Johnson asked for, Medicare Part B, and Medicaid. At the last minute, all thrown in. When Republicans of a certain generation said we opposed Medicare, we had a better program, what they're actually referring to is Medicaid. When we were looking at tapes of the Johnson, and Johnson lies in his autobiography, as it turns out. He just says, Wilbur Mills just became from the villain to the hero for the old folks. And then we got the tapes, just released two years ago. What happens? Days after Johnson is elected, I'm sorry, takes office after Kennedy's assassination, he's calling Wilbur Mills. Wilbur. I gotta have Medicare. Wilbur, I gotta have Medicare. Wilbur says, I can't pass Medicare. I've been fighting this thing all my life. He says, Wilbur, say it wasn't good enough. Make it bigger. Wilbur, put some money in there for doctors. Wilbur, put some money in there for poor people. Wilbur, this could make you famous. Wilbur, this could make you vice president. Over and over again, Johnson's calling. He designed the whole thing. And then he says, Wilbur, you'll get all the credit. Wilbur Mills liked the sound of that. For 40 years, we never knew that it was Johnson that was behind it all for 40 years. And yet, here it is. There is a negotiator who knew how to give the credit to someone else, how to pass the credit. We don't know this about a Barack Obama. Is he a great negotiator? Because that's what it's going to take. Great negotiations in the bowels of this administrative labyrinth that is our Congress. So commandment number two, for winning reform, learn to run the Congress. Learn to work the Congress. Before it was about speeches, now it's just about getting down and dirty and negotiating Congress. And that's true, incidentally, for any president, liberal or conservative. George Bush, when he passed Medicare Catastrophic, Part D, was extraordinarily good. I'm sorry, Medicare catastrophic was Ronald Reagan. Part D was the prescription drug. Both Republican who passed the two largest expansions of Medicare, they were both really good at working the Congress. But it's not something that makes the headlines. If you see a headline about negotiations, someone screwed up. 
It's all closed door if it's going to be successful. Commandment number three, band of kooks. Every great reform in American history takes some wild, crazy, kooky people who start saying, we want this reform. And everybody goes, what a kooky idea. If you're a single-payer advocate and have been pushing, 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 you're part of a band of kooks. Everybody says, I'll never pass. Band of kooks. When I was in graduate school to date myself, there was a guy named Milton Friedman who believed markets were the answer to everything. Well, back when I was in graduate school, everybody used to go around the University of Chicago, not everybody, but all of we political scientists, would say, what a kook, free markets. And 10 years later, he had his Pulitzer Prize, and everybody believed what Milton Friedman believed. So, over abolition, the idea that you could abolish slavery in 1856. In 1850, the abolitionists ran a candidate, got 2% of the vote. The idea, if you had told someone in 1855 that 10 years from now, slavery would be over, if you told someone in 1950 that in 15 years, segregation, formal segregation would be a thing of the past, people would think you were nuts or a band of kooks. All great reforms. I'll give you another one. Newt Gingrich comes to Congress in 1988, says Republicans are going to take over. All great aspirations, all unlikely aspirations, take some crazy people, a Frederick Douglass, a Martin Luther King, a Newt Gingrich, a group of advocates for health reform who push and push and push, and suddenly the opportunity presents itself. That's a story that's true throughout American history for every reform. Four. It takes a movement, not just the band of kooks. The band of kooks keeps it alive, but the movement matters. Congress is a very nervous institution. I can't tell you how many times I, don't, I go up to a congressman and say, why didn't you vote for that? It was a good bill. They'll say, it was a dangerous bill and I didn't get a single email. Kiss of death. They got to be overwhelmed. If they're not overwhelmed, not going to happen. That's a common wisdom, but a very important one. They're scared, congressmen, and they're not going to and women, and they're not going to stick their necks out. So, Get your philosophy straight, learn to run the machine, band of kooks, it takes a movement. Now here's an important one. Speed. You gotta move fast. Lyndon Johnson, that great legislative wizard, got his troops around him after the 1964 landslide and says, I've just won the biggest landslide in Democratic Party history, except for Franklin Roosevelt. And I'll tell you, every day I lose a little power. Every day someone else gets mad at me. You got to get Medicare fast. The lesson for health reform looking across history goes like this. The day after the election, the savvy health advisor turns to her boss and says, hurry up, we're almost out of time. That's five. Move quickly. Six. Clash of symbols. Oh man, Groundhog Day. Health reform is about great symbols, about the nature of America, about who we are. Opponents figured this out in 1915 here in California. Health reform was socialism, un-American, bureaucratic, big government run amok. There must be a better way. When Harry Truman proposed this health reform, one of the lines in his speech was, this is not socialism. The Republicans didn't even have to mention that it was socialism. Harry did it for them. Full-page ads by supporters. The president says this is not socialism. Not a great symbol. 
The opponent's got the symbols down. This is socialism. This is uh, big government. Throw granny off the train. That's a beautiful symbol. You just got to admire it. Death panels. You may like it. You may hate it. But it, for symbolism, for a political scientist, I say, whoa, that's good. And reformers blow it every time. They know. I remember talking to the Obama people. They know, oh yeah, we're ready. We're ready for them. We're ready for them. We, we've got our own symbols because the only way you beat a symbol is by a better symbol. This is not socialism, no. We'll, this is going to kill our grandmothers. Well, it'll bend the cost curve. No. Um, <laughs> it's not true. That's not what's in our bill. No. You need a counter symbol, and it happens every time. Democrats just aren't, they're so in the weeds of the policies, they're not really very good at the symbols. What does a symbol take? What does a symbol look like? It's got four pieces. One, a philosophy. A philosophy behind it. We're all in this together, say. It needs a victim. There are children dying in this country. That's a good, that's, throw granny off the train. No, no, people are dying for lack of health insurance. It needs a plan, of course, and it needs a demon. It needs someone to get angry at, like, well, the insurance companies. It's not fair, but it's effective. <laughs> Philosophy straight, run the machine, band of kooks, takes a movement, speed, symbols. I'm seven, I'm almost there, I'm almost home free. I'm almost home, not necessarily free. Forget the PSROs. What's that mean? When Jimmy Carter, poor Jimmy Carter, he tried national health insurance too, sort of. Um, and there was memo after memo. We saw them boring as can be. And in his fine hand, he'd say, and I think we need PSROs. If you're in the health system and are of a certain age, you remember PSROs are physician service review organizations that review expensive cases. The president shouldn't know what they are. The president should be about the big picture and the negotiating, not about PSROs. The president has to set the symbol, set the picture. And to do that, they need to feel it in their gut. They, health reform, if you see how difficult it is, the first thing you're going to do is run the other way. So for health reform, for a president to really take it on, they need to feel it. We had a hypothesis going into this book, which turned out to be completely 100% wrong. We thought if we looked at the, personal's, the president's own personal health, and these were very sick people on average. On average, they live a lot less than the other people in their generation. That that would help inform which presidents really cared about health reform. Wrong. They're tough guys. Here's John Kennedy, the last rites of the Catholic Church four times uh, as an adult. Didn't touch him at all. But what really moves them is the death or the injury or the illness of a loved one. Every one of them. That gets under their skins. So when John Kennedy's father has a stroke... Joseph Kennedy, he couldn't stop talking about it. And suddenly Medicare went from the back burner to an obsession with him. He's talked about it all the time. He used to say, you know, my dad's rich. How do ordinary people afford the cost of nursing homes? He just became obsessed. And when we saw President Obama weeping, weeping there um, the week before the election because of the death of his grandmother, or when we read in his book about his mother's bout with cancer and her inability to get health insurance, we know that was a president who was really going to feel it in his gut. I'm almost there. Eight, tell the economists to shut up. This is our conclusion that's gotten the most trouble, and my co-author who's in the Obama administration keeps asking me not to repeat it. <laughs> but, you know, every president, 
the economists in the White House have a job, and that's to watch the short-term economic situation. If you're watching that, health reform is tough, and every president has to say, no, I see that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. Republicans are pretty good at this. George Bush, I'm going to spend this much money, that's how much to spend, that's it. His economist is like, we don't like it, he says, that's it. The Democrats, not so much, but every single time reform comes up. Johnson, again, the master. John, there's a great phone call we heard with Johnson talking to this young guy from Massachusetts named Teddy Kennedy. And he says, you know, those, you know how I got Medicare? I suppressed the cost data. He said, those guys, they wanted to predict what it was going to cost 10 years from now. And you know what happens? It's a billion a year. It would never have passed. Now, you think Johnson was irresponsible, and he was. He was irresponsible. But here's the thing to put in your pipe and smoke. If we had, had accurate cost estimates, we could never have had Medicare. It's just, we both believe that. Both of us believe that. So that's something to think about. It's not that you don't want to do something about costs in the long run. It's just when the de debate becomes, uh, becomes about costs, or when you look at short-run costs, you'll never get anything done. Um, I'm not saying be frivolous, don't worry about costs. I'm saying you won't win your reform unless you find a way to bracket that and put it in a larger context. Whew, okay, I'm through that one. I know that usually gets people's hair on fire. Two left, and let me just mention one because I'm running out of time, and that's this. Republicans have been much more successful at health reform than Democrats, and we can talk about why in the, um, the Q&A. But after Lyndon Johnson, no Democrat has gotten anywhere, but Richard Nixon got really quite far and had a quite brilliant plan. Ronald Reagan expanded Medicare more than anybody before him, and George Bush expanded it even further than Ronald Reagan did. Quite striking, given that Democrats own the health care issue. Lots to say about that, but I'm running out of time, so let me get to the last point, then give you a parable, and then we'll move to the Q&A. Last point, and in some ways, for history's purposes, the most important. Learn how to lose. Learn how to lose your health reform. Harry Truman fought bitterly for national health insurance. It was the greatest cause of his career. He says in his autobiography, of all the regrets of my life, losing this one is the greatest. But he never stopped fighting. He pushed and he pushed. And when he went down in flames, they finally came to him at the end of his administration and they said, look, we're never going to win this. Let's make it smaller and just apply your NHI to people over 65. He never went public and admitted that because he hated to admit retreating, but that was the birth of Medicare in 1952. He fought. Compare Bill Clinton. Clinton had a marvelous set of speeches about his health reform. And I should say, if you want to compare Obama and, and, and Clinton, just as a quick aside, where was the Clinton health reform today in late November of, uh, of Clinton's first year? Hadn't been finished. They hadn't finished drafting it yet. It was still not before Congress. It just so you have a sense of the speed of Obama. People say he's going slowly. Not compared to past presidents. Okay, Bill Clinton gives this beautiful speech. Our children will ask us someday, children always come up, our children will ask us someday how it could be that people, families lost everything, lost their savings, lost their houses, lost everything because one family member got sick. And, and he'd talk about it in these elegant, eloquent terms. And then health reform goes down to defeat, crashing defeat. What does he say in his autobiography? Uh, 
I should have skipped it. I feel bad for Hillary. I feel bad for Ira Magaziner, but I should have just kicked the can down the road to the next president and done welfare reform. And you read that and you think, Bill, where's the family who lost everything? He walked away. And by walking away, he let the opponents control the spin. Everyone in this room knows, knows for a fact, if you've studied it, that the, the, the Clinton health reform was a disaster. But at the time, no one thought that. Bill Crystal wrote this wonderful memo saying we've got to defeat health reform because it, it, it has the danger of reconnecting Clinton and the, middle, and the Democrats to the middle class. And if that happens, we're toast, he says to his fellow Republicans. Kill the bill, but don't leave the fingerprints on the body. That's what he wrote them, and they did. And Clinton walked away, so the spin was controlled by the opponents. I'm not going to tell you it was a great bill. I'm just going to tell you while it was being debated, it wasn't viewed as a disaster for everyone. But by walking away, that became the spin. Compare the two. For Clinton, health reform drops off the agenda for 15 years, 12 years, and by the way, the Democrats lose not only the signature issue, but their majorities for the same amount of time. Truman keeps on fighting. So when Johnson passes Medicare, he says to his staff, I want to go out and sign this bill next to Harry. They say, oh, no, no, that was such a debate about socialized medicine, that'll get you, that'll get you into trouble. And Johnson says, no, I'm going out there. And so he goes out there, and he hands Truman a card, Medicare card number one, and he holds the pen, and he says, only you, Mr. President, only you know how it feels as I sign this bill. And Harry Truman, with tears literally in his eyes, says, this is the happiest moment of my life. Bess is sitting there, his wife's sitting there, and she might have not been so good with that. But there, if you're a liberal, that's the moment, these two titans looking at one another and thinking, and, and, and if you're a Republican, you say, well, one of the very few moments, and true enough, but Truman learned to lose. And that's my 10 principles, commandments of health reform. Keep your philosophy straight, learn to run the machine, takes a band of kooks, it takes a movement, speed, 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 symbols, forget the PSROs, you gotta feel what the president does in his gut, tell the economists to shut up. Republicans are more successful than Democrats, so really, one commandment might be elect Republicans, a few of you might like hearing that, and learn to lose. Well, look, uh, you've been so good laughing at all the jokes throughout this. Let me end with a parable. And it doesn't really have all that much of a healthcare point, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it to you anyway. It's a parable of the good community, and it's just meant to remind you that all healthcare is about the good community. And it goes like this uh, Back in Rome in the 17th century, there's a very saintly pope, perhaps. It was Pedro Moroni, uh, not a direct descendant, according to my mother, at least. Pedro Moroni was told by his advisors that there was a, 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 a settlement of Jews right there in Rome, and they said, these people are heathens, they're not even Christians, you've got to throw them out. And Pedro, being a fair-minded man, says, well, we can't just throw them out without finding out. So he calls in the rabbi, and he gives him a test, a theology test, and the test goes like this. It's just a parable. The test goes like this. And Pedro, and the rabbi goes, and the pope goes, well, that's a very good answer, very good answer, rabbi. And then, and then the pope goes like this, and the rabbi, quick as a flash, goes like that. And, and, and the pope says, rabbi, that's a, that's a splendid answer. And then the pope goes over to the sideboard and takes a piece of bread, 
pops it in his mouth. And the rabbi takes a grape, pops it in his mouth. The pope embraces the rabbi, says, we have no doctrinal differences worth speaking. Look, I've wanted you people to stay here anyway. You stay, you're welcome, don't be a stranger. And off goes, they embrace, they talk, they exchange uh, whatever the equivalent of a phone number is, and off goes the rabbi. The Pope's advisors come, and you can't question the Pope's authority because, of course, he's infallible, but you can ask him about his methodology. And so they ask him, what was all that about? And the Pope says, gentlemen, you, you don't know what you're talking about. I pointed out that I'm spiritual sovereign of the entire universe, and very quickly, he reminded me of humility. Just down here, he said, just down here, and he was right. And then I said, there's but one God, and he reminded me there were two, God the Father and God the Son, and he missed the Holy Spirit, but please, no one really understands the Holy Spirit, it's a mystery, let's give him partial on that. And then I took bread, symbol of the Eucharist, he took grapes, symbol of the blood, gentlemen, please, no more talk about Jews in Rome, okay? At that very moment, the rabbi comes back to his, his people, and they say, Rabbi, what happened? What happened? He said, typical, tough negotiations. He got down to his bottom line right away. He said, you people clear out of here. And I said, we're staying right here. <laughs> and then he escalated to threats. I poked your eye out, and I had to escalate. I poked both your eyes out. And then we shared a light lunch. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, I'm Lauren Steiner. The best lecture I've ever heard. The oh, most great. entertaining Thank you. lecture right. I've ever heard. Thank you. Wow. I love I, you guys. I'm one of those band of kooks who's oh. a single-payer advocate. And my feeling about this whole thing, I'll just say real quick, because I'd like your thoughts. I think Obama should have come in with single-payer on the table, not off the table, because then he could have compromised with a strong, robust option. Instead, he came through with no single-payer, and now what we have is a weak public option that's not negotiated, or it is negotiated, it's not based on Medicare. And I also think, I don't understand why he was going after bipartisanship when it's been so clear through his whole administration that Republicans are going to fight him on everything. And just to get this one Olympia <laughs> Snow in there, who is, you know, not even promising to vote for the whole thing, and then Lieberman, you know, the, the health yeah. insurance... You I got you, I got you. You address the, the health insurance industry, but Lieberman's wife is taking money from them, Evan Bayh's wife is taking from money. I mean, how are they not... A factor in this thing. It seems to just they're buying exactly what they want. They're getting 44 million new customers through this mandate, and I don't see how costs are going to be held down without a good public option. Anyway, your comments. Yes. <laughs> um, that's very often on people's minds. Why didn't they go for the full tamale and then negotiate it down rather than go for a half slice? Um, there's many, many things to say about this, but but the simplest thing to say is every 10 miles you get closer to Washington, the harder the public option looks. So when you're out here where, you know, things look normal, um, I, I know that's not usually said about Los Angeles, but truly, if, <laughs> if, if you're used to Washington, but in, in the bubble that is Washington, the, when you look at the, what I was talking about, the, the dynamics of Congress, they... I'm often asked to go talk to Congress about the public option, and they listen politely. There's a few people who are for it, but they always shake their heads. The rules of Congress are so biased that what the Obama people thought, now it may have been a miscalculation, but what they thought was, let's get something we can win and get it through fast. If we put the public option there, we know that's not going to go through. We need 60 votes. Maybe 50, but 60. I can talk about that later or, or afterwards at the reception. Uh, 
It just looked undoable. And because they knew that once the midterms roll around, e.g. next January, e.g. two months, i.e. two months, um, it's all dead, they thought if we put the public option in, there'll be so much screaming and yelling that we won't actually get it through before the midterms. Perhaps a political miscalculation, but spend any time in Washington, and it's absolutely a fait accompli. Let me, let me just very quickly outline the four pieces of the Obama plan and give you just a little bit of hope. Um, first, in, fix the insurance markets. That's, you know, no more, uh, don't, don't insure the left leg. Second, public option. Jacob Hacker, uh, formerly of Berkeley, now of Yale, uh, formerly of Yale, then of Berkeley, then of Yale, decided we'll never get public option through Congress, uh, we'll never get single payer through option. Let's do public option as a back door to single payer, right? That's gotten all the attention. But, part three, create tax subsidies to help people buy insurance. This is the secret, if, if I could, I'd go off the record here. This is the secret that no one's noticed. But this is, this is the door that could be huge. Democrats discovered in the age of Reagan that if they say, we'd like to pass a welfare program, we're welfare! But if they say, we're going to give a tax subsidy to everybody making less than $50,000, everybody, oh, tax subsidy, wake me up when this is over. <laughs> Wait a minute, if I want to give $5,000 to someone, no, that's welfare. But if I want to give them a tax break for $5,000, hello, it's the same thing, everybody yawns. Here's the secret thing. There's a public subsidy in this. Now, right now, it's not that big. But it's very easy to adjust public subsidies. If you're a Republican who hates government programs, you've been asleep at the switch. While everybody's shooting at this public option, which, you're right, is a very thin shadow of its former self, no one's saying anything about this subsidy. The House has a pretty nice subsidy. It goes up to people, families of four making $88,000 a year. Let me repeat that. Families of four making up to $88,000 a year. That's, you know, that's not poverty get a subsidy to help them buy private health insurance. You know, Congress, it's likely to get nicer over time. No one's talking about it. I even hesitate to say anything, lest, you know, someone <laughs> listens to this. That's the hidden part of all this. So, yes, I agree with everything you've said. I mean, you're eloquent, more eloquent than me on it, but don't forget this subsidy, and don't repeat it to your more conservative friends. <laughs> Uh, there's a fourth part, reform the healthcare system, but that's the Obama plan. And if you're a conservative, that's the thing to watch. You're so busy fighting the public option, you want to take a very careful look at this subsidy. Now, Obama has set it quite low now in many ways, but that's the, hidden, that's the joker in this entire deck, and I'm amazed that it hasn't gotten more play from left, right, and center. Okay. Long answer. I'll try to keep the next one shorter. I have a question up at the front here. Uh, I thank you for your enthusiasm. It's infectious. Um, hopefully when and not if healthcare reform passes, um, do you think the greater legacy for this legislation will be containing costs or expanding coverage? Because we do know that Medicare and Medicaid are unsustainable at the current rate. Great question. Uh, and I want to start with the second part of that question. Medicare and Medicaid are unsustainable at the current rate. Absolutely true. But no one says your private insurance premiums are unsustainable at the current rate. And Medicare pays 30% less than the average insurance plan. It also pays too little. That's why Congress is sort of pissed at Medicare. So let's stop and think about what this means. If you're a public option person, this is all for you. What it's really telling us is that Congress hates raising taxes. 
so that if you have a public program, it's going to feel like it's broke all the time. That is why all those other countries have zero cost increases, because legislators are afraid to raise taxes. It's a metaphor to say Medicare is broke. The United States pays the 27th high, uh, of the 30 leading richest countries in the world. We're 27th. I know you won't believe it. We're 27th in, in tax rates, state, national, and local. Uh, so we don't really have a very high tax burden, but we feel it because we do hate taxes as a people. Um, Medicare being broke means really Medicare runs out of money unless we raise more taxes or cut down on, on, on how much we provide. That's cost control in action. Now you think, oh God, it's ugly. I don't like that. If you're a doctor, you're really thinking, I don't like that. That's what cost control is. I hate to tell you, I hate to break the bad news. There is no easy way to stop that penny from a dollar coming to the healthcare system without that kind of squeeze. And that's what it is. That's, what's gonna, that's, what's, that's what Medicare's going broke means. And I'm glad you put it that way. The great, once we solve, for most people, solving the problem of, oh my God, I'm sick, what happens now? That, I think, is the great, that would be the great legacy. There's another legacy we should talk about. If this plan wins, and this is a battle for control of Washington. I wrote this on an op-ed, you can see it on the website. Uh, this is a control, James DeMint, the senator from South Carolina, is absolutely right. This is Waterloo. But remember, um, if you're Napoleon, Waterloo, not so good. Uh, but, you know, the, Wellington rather liked the Battle of Waterloo. There's a winner here, too. And everybody in Washington knows this. The Republicans have put themselves in a corner. If the program passes and if the program is popular, you don't want to be a Republican House member for the next 10 years uh, because you're safe in your district, but you can't run anywhere else. You can't go up to governor. If the Democrats go down in flames, it'll be a bloodbath again. Everybody knows that. If it proves to be an unpopular program, Democrats are toast. Everybody in Washington is fighting this battle as a policy battle, but also as a battle for control of the high ground. It's not nice. It's ugly. We political scientists love this. Most citizens think, oh, God, can't they just get together and solve the problems? No, it's called democracy. We have to deal with it. And that gets back to your bipartisan point. I have another question. question in the front. Uh, hi. Hi. Um, Jesus was all about taking care of the sick and the injured, yet the Republicans seem to play the Jesus card as easy as they draw breath. What's keeping, <laughs> what's keeping the Democrats from playing that same card? Um, you know, if you go back and read 40 years ago, the reason the tone of our conversation was so different is because you had Martin Luther King walking up and down the country saying things like, I am necessarily my brother's keeper because I'm my brother's brother. Anything that enriches the poor enriches us all. Anything that impoverishes the poor, remember this? Martin Luther King. When, when there's that kind of fervor, and you've just said it in a different ways, invoking Jesus, uh, Christian nonviolence was Martin Luther King's gloss on that, it's the powerful symbols of the era. The current era was set by your... Uh, Ronald Reagan, your, because he came from California. Um, <laughs> Democrats tried to go up against them. They got slaughtered. You might remember my friend Mike Dukakis. He still walks around with a very large chip on his shoulder um, <laughs> about Walter Mondale. After a couple of years of getting their heads handed to them, the Democrats tried to talk like junior Republicans and say, but this is going to bend the cost curve. This is going to be good for everyone. As I said, it really is about deep symbols. And you'll know that the Democrats are truly a majority party when they begin to engage their symbols. 
goals. Look, Americans really believe in two different visions. One is individualist, every person for themselves, and so forth. The other is what I call the social gospel, the idea that we are our brother's keeper. The social gospel has a long, rich tradition. No one ever articulated it better than Martin Luther King. And our politics, you could say, well, shouldn't it be both, Professor? Yes. But as you get to Washington, you see one or the other dominating. And for the last 30 years, not only has the individualist ethos dominated, but Democrats have been frightened to go up against it and articulate their own symbols. If you're a Republican, you can sit back and smile. As long as everybody's talking about cost benefits, they're talking your language. If you're a Democrat, your band of kooks philosophy is, I believe in social insurance. I believe when someone gets sick, it's our responsibility. Two different visions, both deeply rooted in America. And the Democrats have abandoned theirs. I do, I do think that's true. Uh, Obama often points towards a new... And you know, one thing to say about Obama, man, he is slow and steady. You know, he looked like a hare, but he's the tortoise. It's like slow and steady. So Sarah Palin gets nominated, McCain goes through. He's like, no, believe me, national politics is tough. No one can do it on their first time. I just relax. And sure enough, uh, you know what happens. He just has this philosophy of, I'm just going to work it. I'm just going to work it slow. Um, I mean, just gonna, he's like a basketball player from the 1940s, you know, playing a good team, you just slow the game down. And that's his, I think that's his philosophy, and I think he's going to slowly try to re-articulate this. But it's a good question and a, and a fervent question that reflects frustration with where the Democrats have been for the last 35 years. It's good. I have a question up in the front here. David Randall. Uh, Part of the, the framing of the debate seems not only the symbolism in, in whether you're conservative and, and individualism or, or a group, but how you structure it. The question of throw the grand, grandmother from the train and, and she's sick and, and are you going to cut off her aid? Or the other way of framing the same sort of thing is, is how much is a human life worth? How many dollars are you going to put on that value? And you say, well, it's an inestimable value. It means we can spend the, the gross national product on one life. Or... No, I, 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 gee, I, she's only got a few months to live, but I guess I wouldn't hesitate to provide her support and comfort and all that and spend lots of money on her. But if we reframe it and say, you're 23 years old, what percentage of your total income do you want to put to the last two months of your life? And do you want to spend 40% of all your excess uh, income and all the, the wealth you accumulate over your life on that little piece of it? And I say, no, I think, I, I think I'd rather have it and pass it on. Or, or maybe even more selfishly, I'd rather have it and spend it for all the years between now and those last two months of my life rather than give it up for maybe a week more, a couple of weeks more of life. And that framing is a much easier decision to make because it's me versus me instead of me versus grandmother or me versus child. One of the things implicit in this very good question is that the statistics are stunning that a some huge proportion, depending on how you measure it, go to people in their last two to three months of life, where it's huge. Um, and there's an implication here that everybody believes that's also implicit in your question. The implication is when it comes to medicine, people always want more. You know, I have a friend who says what most people want out of a hospital is out. Uh, when <laughs> my dad was dying, the idea of him, I mean, he, the idea, he had a... a uh, a series of episodes, and the first one, they took him to the hospital. The se but after the first one, he said, please, 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 don't take me back there. So we've got a whole system geared to getting someone to high-tech care, really even if it's at the end of life. And it's, your question is about framing, but it really raises this deep philosophical question. 
and it's twofold. One, what do we spend our healthcare dollars on? And secondly, and more important, who decides? Right now, we have this mishmash of a system. You go, you go to a physician, he, call, he or she calls the insurance company, they negotiate about whether or not this coverage is going to be covered. Every system, sooner or later, says, okay, someone's going to decide. The English are clear. They say, the, the physician's going to decide. Physician's going to make uh, choices. You maybe can have make individuals decide, but somehow we've, gotta, we've really got to grapple with that, with that whole problem. At 17% of GDP, we should be able to provide pretty good medical care for everybody, for everybody in the country. But it's not infinite. Everybody rations. We ration now, in my view, in a particularly mean way. That is, we ration people who are either sick or poor or can't get into the system. 75 million without insurance sometime in the last two years. Half of all bankruptcy. That's a bitter form of rationing. But if you're comfortable, the idea of rationing is necessarily frightening. You know, I get good health insurance. I'm still, well, young. Um, it's getting harder and harder to say that, particularly with my 18-year-old students. Um, <laughs> Nevertheless, this is the sort of philosophic conundrum at the bottom of the system. But I think it's been framed in such a way as to really scare people. Like, we're just going to start cutting people off. And I think that's not likely to be true. Look, even the most ardent single-paying system in the United States, is this is America, it's always going to have a business class. Anybody of any means in Medicare has Medigap insurance that covers more stuff. If you had a single payer from coast to coast, there would be a thousand insurance policies for the business class flight. You see all the businessmen lining up, me too, uh, when at every gate before the flight they want business class. Well, that's how health insurance is going to be. So the idea that this would be a radically rationed system with cold water and tables falling off operating, that, those are just <laughs> images that are not likely. But beneath all that, there's a deep philosophic question. Sooner or later, you have to say no. How do we decide who does that? And that's a question no one, no one, no one wants to face, except little groups of philosophers sitting around conference tables. It's a real deep issue, but we're far from really confronting it. We have another question to your left. Great. My left. Here, Professor, my Hi. name is Maria Lena, and Hi, Maria. Uh, my question is, do you think that um, the use of the Republicans or the conservatives of socialism as the big, the big monster that we could become is sort of a hankering for the old Cold War you know, days when there was an enemy, there was something they could point to. Because I was in Russia last week, and I saw the breakdown of the socialized social medicine there where my hostess I was staying with has diabetes, and she has not been able to see a doctor for two years. She's really hankering for those old days. Why has there never been a discussion, if that's what we're supposed to fear, socialized medicine, why haven't we gone and picked the bones of what was good and bad about it? Because there was at least primary care for everyone. Well, my and wife taught in Denmark recently, and she went to get her social security card, and they said, here's a list of physicians, uh, this by uh, neighborhood, uh, gender, and year of degree, medical degree. Pick one. We don't want you being hit by a bus and not having a doctor. You can change them. Pick one. And she said, you know, the day I applied for my Social Security card so they could take my taxes out, a 50% tax rate, um, they, they also gave me a doctor. Right away, she had a medical episode. There was this lovely woman who took care of her. And at some point, she had a question. She called up the office. The doctor picked up the phone. It was just remarkable. And she said, I love this. I don't want to come home. And I said, oh. um, So... 
it, it, this sort of fear. But, you know, it comes back to the question about Jesus and the set of questions. It is a, this is a debate, really, that touches, and has since Roosevelt, that touches what America is about. It's really, it seems like a policy debate, right? What's the most effective way and the efficient way to run a healthcare system? The reason it's so hard, and it's also about politics, right? Who's going to control politics? But on another level, it's really about the emblems of what it is to be an American, what America is like. So, I, you know, you, you, you scratch a liberal and they say, we're sadly, guiltily, we're the only country in the world without national health insurance. You talk, you talk to a conservative. My dad was a lifelong ardent Republican. To him, the, the United States looks like France. You know, we've got Social Security. We've got unemployment compensation. We got, from his perspective, a dozen, form of wel- a dozen forms of welfare. We've got housing subsidies. We got, the list goes on. But we don't have health insurance. It's this one emblem. So both sides see it, not just as a po- another policy area, but a real emblem of what America's like. It gets back to several of you have asked the symbolic question. It's about the philosophy of America. A lot of people thought when socialism came up in 1949, we had a red scare going. Socialism was huge. Today, when it first came up, I thought, well, there's a tired old symbol. No. People are really fighting about what their vision of America is. And I have to say, the Democrats have hamstrung themselves being so fearful of their own moral arguments. You really got, several of you have gotten to this. Um, I keep coming back to Martin Luther King and how easy he made it for Democrats. They could hide behind his forceful rhetoric. There was lots of trouble during the civil rights movement, to be sure, but the, the symbols were articulated on the Democratic side not so much on the Republican side. That's flipped, and that really comes back to that. You can spend hours and hours just thinking about these, the symbol of socialism and what it means. I want to say one more thing about this, because it's important. There are y- certain moments in American history when you feel things beginning to shift. There are these long pendulums, and there are moments when you think, is this the pendulum moment? When Ro- 1978, when you guys had Proposition 13, you could just feel the descriptions of the, the, the cabinet table with Jimmy Carter and everybody thought, oh my God. And two years later, Ronald Reagan wins, and things that would be laughed at in 1975 were common wisdom by 1985. The pendulum shifted. Most of the things Reagan ran on he won, have been won. The 70% tax rate on the wealthiest Americans is down to 30% of highly regulated economy is per, uh, highly deregulated, so on and so forth. So that we've been sitting around waiting for the pendulum to start coming the other way. And everybody feels it. It, um, it, it. We thought it might be happening in the first Clinton years. No. In fact, it went back the other way. This is one of those rare moments when we're watching American politics and thinking, is it all going to change? If you're a conservative, that's a very fearful moment. If you're a Democrat, it's a hopeful moment, but there's an awful lot at stake, and it's all coming down to this health reform, or a lot of it is. So the socialism reminds people, oh my God, everything I've taken for granted in the last 35 years might change. It has through American history, and it will again. The question is when. Hi, my name is Dennis Shea, and my question was, we've talked a lot about the broken coverage system, and I'm glad we're doing something about it, but we have an equally broken delivery system, and when everyone gets coverage, and uh, I guess a broken delivery system is highlighted, what's going to happen? 
Oh, that's a great question. The fourth thing I snuck in at the, when I was talking about the three problems, that fourth problem is the delivery system. And that's a huge question. If you, one of my best friends is a, uh, the head of um, psychiatry at the largest hospital in New York. And he just describes what it's like um, in an emergency room uh, on, a, on a night as, as he's dealing with people committing suicide. Um, our delivery system is of incredible patchwork of extraordinarily good healthcare and not so good healthcare. And the biggest problem, ah, tell you the story. I've worked with David Blumenthal, my co-author, for three years. We worked very intensely. We were writing this book. We talked almost every day. And after, as the book was coming to an end, I turned to him and I said, David. And he said, there aren't any. I said, how do you know what I'm going to ask? And he goes, that's the tone of voice. All my friends come to it sooner or later. You're going to ask me if there's a good primary care physician in Boston. And I, there aren't any. There aren't any with open practices. Um, he said, you want, if you have the world's most complicated disease, you're golden. I got a hundred specialists for you. But primary care, don't know one. That's what you're talking about. It's huge. And that's, would that save costs? I think it would. Um, and that's something that we know it's a problem. It's, as long as we have 50 million people without health insurances and these costs going up, there's so much chaos. If we could tame that, then we could start having these more sensible conversations. That should be an easy one to solve. Primary care, a real primary care infrastructure would cost much less. Uh, paying people to go to medical school if they give back to the community by being primary care physicians is a great idea. Uh, Democrats and Republicans can agree on it. Once we solve this battle, maybe we can start talking about that. But it's a, it's a huge set of issues and a very, very important one. Some of the questions you've asked are about deep philosophy. When do we say no as a medical system? This is a question about organization and sense. We're not, I, my guess is we won't come near solving it till we solve the other issues because the other issues are so dynamic, uh, dramatic. Do Democrats and Republicans scream at one another about. So that's, this is a smaller issue. And you didn't ask me. Uh, I'm going to answer one last question that they didn't ask in, in just 10 seconds. There's another wild card in all this um, that is the whole issue that, Senator, that Representative Joe Wilson screamed at Barack Obama uh, when he called him a liar. And that's the issue of immigration. That the, I mean, you, you, as if we didn't have enough symbols, abortion and immigration get, get tossed in, right? Huge. But the immigration issue is the one that we political scientists are watching very carefully. You have 60 million people in the United States at least one of whose parents was not born in the United States. I'm one of them, as I know many of you. That is an enormous group, and we all know that that group of immigrants, of uh, people who uh, are recent arrivals, the more recent arrivals in the United States, will change our politics. We, we know that. We know that. Uh, I was in, in a session of the Senate, of the Democrats in the Senate, when uh, your mayor, Villaraigosa, comes and and talks to the Democrats, and he goes, you want to win? You can win. California was a red state, it turned into a blue state. Why? I'm just quoting now, two million angry Mexicans. You want to win? You can win. Come after the immigrants. And the Democrats are like, oh, that sounds good, but it's scary. And so underneath all the complications we've been talking about is this 
powder keg that's going to change your politics, and everybody knows it's going to change your politics. George Bush saw this clear as day and tried to have an enlightened immigration reform. He failed. Uh, but that, you know, you're, you're in California, you know about this, but it's now filtered to the rest of the country. So on top of everything else that we've talked about, the immigration debate bubbles beneath this and every now and then bursts to the surface and shakes everybody up. It makes everybody in Washington who, after all, was elected by an existing coalition, very, very nervous. But watch that. Five, ten years from now, our politics are going to be very, very different. And if that's the case, Barack Obama may just be the opening, the beginning of a whole new kinds of politics. I know I've said very many depressing things, but to me, uh, as someone who grew up abroad in Brazil, uh, that is one of the most exciting things I can tell you. And if you don't agree, we'll argue over drinks. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you.